The following Taisho by Shinge Roshi, Roko Sheri Shayat, was recorded at the Zen Center of Syracuse Hoenji in Syracuse, New York. These recordings are offered for free. We welcome your financial support. To contribute and for further information, please visit www.zencenterofsyracuse.org. Thank you. Good morning. morning. Recently at Daibosatsu Zendo, we had Obon ceremony, which we have done here four times too. And as most of you know, this is the ceremony when we pay homage to and express our gratitude to and unite with those who have passed on, especially our family members, dear friends. And it was a really powerful ceremony and time together working to put that on and participating in it and bidding our departed ones farewell. Intermittently it rained, so we had a really heavy storm. Just before I began speaking, it stopped so we could feel, oh, okay, we'll be able to sail our lanterns on the lake. And we could hear a beautiful silence outside. And then just when we picked up our lanterns and went over to the entrance to walk down to the lake, the skies opened up again. So we were walking with umbrellas and trying our best to get down to the lake without having our lanterns extinguished. And just as we approached the water where the boats were waiting to take the lanterns from us, the rain stopped. And the lanterns went into the boats and I think there were about 60 of us each holding a lantern and passing it to those who were in the boats and then the boats took off for the other shore and let the lanterns out on the lake to drift away for another year. Only they didn't. They stayed by the Buddha on the other shore all night. At midnight, I looked out, and there they were, just not wanting to leave. But it was a wonderful experience, especially uh, there were some people who had never done that before at Daibosatsu. I think, Joe, your first experience. And in the ceremony, we offer nourishment to the departed ones, and we speak in terms of the hungry ghosts. While I was at Daibosatsu, Puchin gave me a book to read that she thought was really good, and I've been appreciating it a lot, by um, a French immigrant to uh, Canada named Gabor Maté. I'm not sure where he's from, but anyway, 
maybe hungry. He wrote this book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. That wasn't meant to be a pun, sorry. Well, it is now. And um, I thought his description and his work, his work is with addicts in a very poverty-stricken part of Vancouver. I thought his description of Hungry Ghost Realm was really great. We may think that the hungry ghosts, uh, those who have died and are wandering in misery through the six realms and are in the hungry ghost realm, are uh, somehow separate from us. But if we look deeply in our practice, we realize that's not at all the case. So let me read this to you. The inhabitants of the hungry ghost realm are depicted as creatures with scrawny necks, small mouths, emaciated limbs, and large, bloated, empty bellies. This is the domain of addiction, where we constantly seek something outside ourselves to curb an insatiable yearning for relief, for fulfillment. The aching emptiness is perpetual because the substances, objects, or pursuits we hope will soothe it are not what we really need. We don't know what we need. And so long as we stay in the hungry ghost mode, we'll never know. We haunt our lives without being fully present. Isn't that a wonderful statement? We haunt our lives without being fully present. No society can understand itself without looking at its shadow side. I believe there is one addiction process, whether it is manifested in the lethal substance dependencies of my downtown east side Vancouver patients, the frantic self-soothing of overeaters or shopaholics, the obsessions of gamblers, sexaholics, and compulsive internet users, or the socially acceptable and even admired behaviors of the workaholic. So in this book, he gives many stories of those he works with, but I think if we listen to what I just read and reflect on our own lives, it's quite familiar. We don't need to be shooting up to relate to what he said. So this afternoon, I'll be meeting with a class that will be taking the precepts at our January session. And this will be our second meeting as a group with me. And thinking about where to begin, how to create the context for taking the precepts, to look within and see our own addictive behavior, even addicting ourselves to a self-righteous attitude. Oh, I'm not an addict. Can be very hard to move away from in a healthy direction. So thinking about that and 
the precepts, of course, come from the six paramitas. But before going into the six paramitas, of which the second, Shila, is the precepts, I thought, well, we really need to step back even further. By further, I mean come closer to the very ground, the fundamental teachings. And that brings us to the Buddha's first sermon on the Four Noble Truths, particularly the last, the Eightfold Path. So before I start talking about the Eightfold Path, I want to talk about the word noble. What do you see as uh, understanding? How do you understand noble? Integrity. Integrity. That's really good. The four paths of integrity. Some talk about the cultural time of the Buddha and how there is this understanding of caste system, right? The nobles. And that the word noble was used to indicate how significant or how really important and high these truths were. But I think uh, the translation integrity is really good. It avoids that, that sense of caste. What else do you think of when you think of noble? Responsible. Responsible. Honest. Honest. Hmm? Fundamental. Fundamental. Like metal, metals have a noble. Hmm? There's a noble set of metals. Mm-hmm. There's a very fundamental one. A noble set of metals in a periodic chart of chemistry. Of <laughs> metals. M E T A L S. Okay, not M E T T L E or M E D D L E. But M E T A L S. Metals. There's a noble set of metals. Who knew? <laughs> and what does that mean? Well, my memory from years ago is relatively unchanging. Um, ah. highly, is that right, folks, that are closer to chemistry? Uh, yeah, like, well, I think the noble gases, what is it, mm-hmm. chlorine, bromine? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Argon. Mm-hmm. Oh, argon. there you go, argon. Yeah. Yeah. They don't react. Wow, that's great. What a wonderful metaphor for the Four Noble Truths. Non-reacting. They are what they are. It is as it is. We act without reacting. So that's a wonderful understanding of uh, the metal of metal. Yes. Courageous, the four noble truths, the noble knight in armor, the four noble truths as the courageous way of practice, right? So all of these are wonderful. But I think that at the very core, and this is kind of a humorous thing to say, at the very core is 
essentially shunyata. So if, if we cling to some idea of these truths, we get into trouble. So we have to understand these four noble truths are the truths of shunyata, of no fixed condition or substance, no unchanging nature. So then we have to look back at those metals and think, mm, there may be something there that we are bound by. And so to look beyond that, to have the courage to see the fundamental shunyata of the Four Noble Truths is, I think, getting to the quote-unquote empty core, emptiness at the heart, non-attachment. Kaz Tanahashi translates boundlessness, not emptiness, but boundlessness. Shunyata is boundlessness, not the void, but the boundlessness of these fundamental truths. So as you know, every word has its connotation and implication, and that's why in the Diamond Sutra, Words cannot convey the true nature of the universe. Nonetheless, we have 32 chapters of words in the Diamond Sutra and many efforts on our own part to entangle and then disentangle with these words. Very important not to dismiss the intellect, not to dismiss discursive reasoning, not to dismiss words as long as we understand that they cannot convey the true nature of being. So how about these four noble truths? Well, we, I will not spend time on the first three because we are, I have many times with you and we are all aware of the noble truth of suffering. We don't have to look very far to agree that suffering exists. When I say we don't have to look very far, I don't mean we have to just look to our neighborhood. I mean we just look inside. And the second noble truth, what causes suffering to really see how we ourselves intensify our own pain and make it into suffering by getting so caught up with our storylines, by forgetting that everything is impermanent, that everything is an aspect of everything else. And that all our dissatisfactions and difficulties stem from our belief in a separate self that has substance that will exist forever. 
we don't say that, of course. We don't say, I'm going to live forever. But we do assume that we can sleep through this talk because it's just a talk. We'll be around for another one. We can sleep through this breath, not aware of this breath, because, hey, whatever. We'll have a few more. How many more? I don't know either. But it's good to know that they are a finite number. Now you might say, well, that seems to be somehow buying into the idea of suffering because if I'm really clear that I'm going to die, doesn't that make me suffer? Doesn't that make me miserable right now? I don't want to die. So if I'm really clear about the fact that I'm going to die, isn't that a kind of suffering? How many of you feel absolutely no compunctions about your own death? Not too many hands go up on that one. So we have to be honest. Yeah, it is. To realize we are dying is indeed bringing us right back to an awareness of suffering, but in a different way, and not in an ignorant way, in a true way, in an honest way, to be in touch with what it's like to fear. It's when we ignore, when we consciously or unconsciously move away from these truths of our emotions that we get into trouble and move toward addiction. So, the third noble truth of cessation is that we can indeed stay with it, be right here, clearly in the shunyata of this moment. So cessation. Stop the endless round of grabbiness and preference, right? Cessation means right here, right in this very sitting, to drop everything. And you've experienced that in one period of meditation. The thought processes continue and continue and you're in the past and you're in the future and you're planning this and worrying about that and remembering that. And then what happens? All of a sudden, maybe, now and then, you just let it go. You remember, oh, out-breath, the sounds around you suddenly become this moment. Nothing added, nothing to do, nothing to change. Cessation of all that self-imposition on the grandeur of this moment. By self-imposition, I just mean, usually we think we have to do it for it. You know, we have to do this moment for it. This moment won't be okay unless we do it. Crazy, huh? We are. So cessation means a moment of sanity in all of that. 
I hear. There is no I here. It often starts with H-E-A-R and then moves into H-E-R-E. So then, fourth noble truth, eightfold path. Okay, let's see. Oh, I still have some time. Good. Setting things up sometimes, you know, takes... It's very important that we all take this seriously, this setting things up. It's so often the case that people jump to what they want the end result to be. And there is no such thing. So right here, what is it to understand? Noble. What is it to understand four noble truths? So let's look at the Eightfold Path. As with all things in numbers beyond four, we usually forget. Does anyone remember the first noble truth? Yes? Right view. Right view. That's good. Right view or right understanding. So let's look at this word right. Once again, like noble. There's noble and there's ignoble. If we get caught in the dualism of it, we're far away from the shinyata of noble. So how about right? Immediately, what do we think of when we hear the word right? Yeah, it's not correct, though. Correct is not correct. So as soon as we hear the word right, we get into dualistic thinking, right as opposed to wrong, correct as opposed to incorrect. So therefore, it is not correct or not right to have a view that is, of course, in any way, uh, circumscribed by a dualistic mind. All right, so how do we understand right in a non circumscribed way. Yes? Open. 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 Appropriate. Appropriate. Clear. Clear. Non-diluted. Dynamic or responsive. Dynamic or responsive. Hmm, That's good. Okay. Fertile. Fertile. Fertile, okay, right as fertile. In other words, something can emerge. All right. Genuine. Genuine. Genuine is wonderful. Genuine. As opposed to inauthentic. We can easily go into a dualistic view, but there's something, that word is really wonderful. Anything else? How do we avoid getting into the dualistic mindset, even all these wonderful words can have their, their opposites, right? And become uh, in some way imply 
a scolding attitude. So return to shunyata, but even um, more specifically, I think, in the case of right, correct, having integrity, authentic, all the dynamic, all the good things you said, I think specifically we may say um, coming from no self. or non-attached. So right view or uh, right understanding would be the understanding of the Four Noble Truths, right? That the minute we set up a separate self, we suffer and all the rest. And right view or right understanding would also be based on an understanding of dependent co-origination. In other words, this is a you know essential teaching of Buddhism. Nothing happens that is not in, intimately connected with something else. Nothing has its own separate being. Nothing that has life right now can be taken apart from all the rest of life and all the rest of death, all the rest of immeasurable kalpas, past or future. Each one of us is here, in a simple way of saying it, as a result of many, many, many causes, right? Many beings, many people. We may, we may only see our parents, but Of course, we understand it goes way back. Before our human ancestors, way back, before Earth, this dependent co-origination, way back. So that in itself is mind-blowing, right? Here we are, right understanding, way back, way forward. Then the second, does anyone remember? Yes? She's been studying. I looked them up the other day. I thought, and you have a memory left. Great. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing about being under 65. That's so nice. Tell us. Right intention. Yes, right intention or right motivation or right resolve. Very important. And you can see we could... Uh, perhaps use the word vow, right, vow, thinking about our practice, to have a vow. This second of the Eightfold Path. If we think we're doing this practice for 
a kind of limited sense of ourselves. In other words, what do I mean by that? What would be an example? Hmm? This will make us better. This will make us nicer. This will make us more acceptable. This will make us less prone to depression. This will make us less addicted. This will make us, you, you know, dot, dot, dot. If we think in terms of a therapeutic approach, that would perhaps be a way in, but it certainly would lead, one would hope, to what we call right motivation or right intention or right resolve, right to, leading to vow based on what we understand about the Four Noble Truths. So based on one understanding. If we really understand, we know how important this is to really take our lives and live each moment with motivation, with intention. You all know, I'm sure, the difference between frittering away a moment and being really present for it, right? We've all had that experience, I'm sure, of frittering away precious time and then thinking, oh my goodness, two hours have passed. I wasn't here. So come, come back, right motivation, be here. Ram Das, be here now. And third, right? Speech. Speech. This one really, we, we have some, I think, um, it's easy to... to to take this one with a moralistic view because it's so often the case that our speech degenerates into something that's quite not right, that doesn't have integrity, that is harmful. And so the sense of right in, perhaps in, in a definition that might be um, very self-oriented, self-righteous, oppressive toward others, or in a lighter vein, simply heedless, heedless of what our words can do. Words are so powerful. As I quoted earlier from the Diamond Sutra, words cannot convey the true nature of the universe, but they can convey cruelty very easily. And at the same time, how to use speech to cut through delusions. How to use speech as Manjushri uses the sword 
Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of compassion. So to use speech wisely when needed to cut through a kind of self-deceptive attitude in those we care about, close to us, we must cut through. We must point out. Of course, you know this is very difficult. We can say, don't gossip. All right, that's something we can say. That's very clear. It's not right speech to gossip about others. But when we look at right speech from the point of view of correction, for caring very much about someone, for someone who is deceiving herself or himself. How do we use right speech? This is hard, right? Yeah, very hard. Sometimes you may have put yourself out there and wanting to to point something out and then afterwards think, was that really based on right motivation? Or was that just a reactivity? Or just an opportunity to show my superiority? There's so many, right? Speech is really hard. So four, action. right action, right action. And of course we can say, well, avoid any acts that are harmful. Avoid any acts that are in opposition to the precepts. Sounds good. And then when you get down to it, the next moment, there you are acting in a way that is not so helpful, that you may be so completely ignorant or blind about that you don't realize it until a long time later. Whoa. That act was not helpful. Comes after speech. So as we all know, in confession, in the verse of purification... We are first the most subtle is thought, then word, then act, right? It all comes back to thought, which is back to number one, right? Understanding. If we really stay grounded with right view, then truly we can hope to maintain our integrity through the Eightfold Path and all its manifestations. And so quite allied with right action is right livelihood. Here again, you know, 
you have to avoid uh, being moralistic and judgmental about someone whose karma may have brought her to being a barmaid or uh, selling drugs on the street. And it's, it's not in keeping with the Eightfold Path to be moralistic toward that person. But for ourselves, having this practice, certainly we can think carefully about what we are paid to do. And I'm really very concerned about the predilection toward moral judgment, moralistic judgment here. And I, I'm thinking, for example, of uh, yesterday at a Tibetan sitting, there was a young man who came who's in the army. He came with his wife and his mother and is really having a hard time so to extend our bodhisattva understanding to this person who has been in the military, has been the perpetrator of harmful acts, and to open our hearts to understand that each person is indeed living out his and her karma and can change. And to purify our karma is why we're here. So the more we can see right livelihood for ourselves, we may have to give something up. We may have to give up a pension. We may have to give up a lot of money in order to really live with integrity when we see I don't want to do this anymore. Right? And of course, you can see right livelihood as also a way of feeling superior. If someone takes it with that dualistic stance and thinks, oh, well, I'm a social worker. My work is really right livelihood. Well, how? is your understanding, how is your motivation, how is your speech, how is your action in that job, you can be just worse than someone who's butchering animals. So, you know, this is perhaps a little more sophisticated than most people take on when they look at the Eightfold Path, but I invite you to see it with this level of complexity and subtlety. And then we have six. Uh, right mindfulness? Right effort. Effort. Right effort is something that we all have examined deeply. Anyone who's come to practice has looked at that very I think very deeply because we know we're not supposed to be here striving to get something, striving to gain, right? To uh, acquire spiritual materialism, as Trungpa Rinpoche called it. 
And yet, we also know how lazy we can be and how self-indulgent and how self-deceptive and how easy it is for us to just not really understand true effort, courageous effort. What's the most courageous effort in our practice? To be with things as they are. Absolutely. That's it. And in order to do that, we have to let go, right? Let go of everything that we've brought with us, all the baggage, all the concepts, all the preferences, the whole enchilada. Just let go right here in this moment. Cessation. That is right effort, to return again and again. We teach very you know, basic meditation instruction, return to one. Yeah, it's great if you count all the way to ten. I don't really care. Return to one. If you wandered off at two, I don't really care. Return to one. This is it. Return to one. This is right effort, no matter where you are, what you're doing. How caught up you are. All you have to do is notice that you're caught. Notice you're imprisoned by whom? Your idea of a separate self. Return to one. No one home. Therefore, boundlessness. And seven... Right mindfulness or awareness, to be aware, to notice, yes, I've drifted off. Just being with what is, just this, sound, all of it, as it is, not having preferences. I don't like that because it was a loud motor, no. Not thinking, oh, I can't hear the birds. I wish they would open the windows. No. No preference. And eight? Uh, Concentration. Right, concentration or samadhi. To really have this ability to focus from this 360-degree awareness, then... And this opens up into samadhi, which has no sound, no color, no flavor, no, just no. Well, I was going to read a passage from Pema Chodron uh, on the precepts, six paramitas, rather. We didn't get to the precepts. But she says, I guess I will read it, the foundation of the prajna paramita, the wisdom of perfection, is mindfulness. And what is mindfulness? An open-ended inquiry into our experience. Right here, our experience. 
It's not something that we have to get to. It's right here, right? She says, We question without the intention of finding permanent solutions. Boy, that's a hard one. To really have this inquiry, this compassionate investigation, without the idea that we have to find permanent solutions. As you know from what I've said today, there is no such thing. There's no such thing as permanence. There's no such thing as solutions. To have resolve without the idea of having a solution, resolution, it's very important to to see it this way. No, permanent solutions. We're always looking for a permanent solution. What's the problem with the permanent solution that we engage in trying to find? What's... Well, that was a lot of people at once. <laughs> Go ahead, Everything Joe. Everything changes all the time. Everything changes all the time. Well, suppose we think we have found a permanent solution. What's it feel like? What's a permanent solution feel like? Death. Huh? Death. Death. We think because that's what death is. Yeah, we think. But, of course, that's too our view, <laughs> our misunderstanding of death. But... Permanent solution feels like being shut up in a box with no air. There's no dynamism there. And yet, we lead our lives as though we have to find permanent solutions. And we shut everything down. We shut people down. We shut ourselves down, of course, by living that way. So when you feel, oh, I wish I could find a permanent solution, I have no resolution then the next feeling you should have is, great. (laughs) Then I must be alive and open to what this is. How wonderful. And then she says, we cultivate a mind that is ready and inquisitive, not satisfied with limited or biased views. It's like lying in bed before dawn and hearing rain on the roof. This simple sound can be disappointing because we were planning a picnic. It can be pleasing because our garden is so dry. But the flexible mind of prajna, wisdom, doesn't draw conclusions of good or bad. It perceives the sound without adding anything extra, without judgments of happy or sad. It is with this unfixated mind of prajna that we practice the paramitas, generosity, discipline or precepts, enthusiasm, patience, and meditation. And then, moving from narrow-mindedness to flexibility and fearlessness to prajna, wisdom. So that is a beginning to the investigation of what we'll be looking at over the next few months, the paramitas and the 10 precepts, and actually 16 precepts, taking the whole of our practice from the fundamental precepts the three refuges, and the ten important precepts.